Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One of the things that is really critical is reflecting who we are, and that means having women in all positions of an organisation. So whether that be the people who are the managers or the leaders or whether it be people at the front line, you need that equal representation to ensure that you're getting the best decisions. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the fourth instalment of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts, Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia, are joined by Catherine Byrne, Deputy Director General of Capability and Corporate Management for the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES. In her first ever public interview in the role, Catherine talks about the reality of Australian spies, the diverse range of recruits that ACES are looking for, and her unique career influences. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in National Security podcast. I'm Meg Tapia. And I'm Gay Brotman. And we're excited to speak to you today from the Australian National University, from the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, the first Australians of this land, who I acknowledge and celebrate and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Today, we are privileged to have a leader who started her career in frontline policing and is now second in charge at Australia's foreign and arguably most secret intelligence organisation. In November last year, Catherine Byrne was officially identified by the Australian government as being the Deputy Director General of ACES, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. She is one of only three people who are publicly known to work for ACES. Now, what I really love about Catherine is that she is a celebrated member of the community who genuinely values difference and leads positive change. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Meg. Uh, Great to see you and hi, Gay. Hello. Okay, so we are going to dive right in and talk about national security. Most of us get our impression of intelligence agencies from film and from TV. Society has a fascination with the idea of espionage and spying and secrets. And your motto at ACES is access secrets, disrupt threats and secure Australia. Can you tell us, though, what do you actually do? Well, so there's a lot in that question. So I guess I'll start with the end about what we actually do as a Australia's foreign intelligence service. So we primarily work overseas. That is where our authorities really are, are to work overseas. And essentially, we are a human intelligence agency. So working overseas, using human intelligence to as you just said, to identify those secrets that might be or that will be of value in protecting Australia, in protecting Australians and the national interests of Australia. So there's a lot then that sits behind all of that, but that's primarily what it is and what we do. 
And you mentioned there's a fascination with espionage and there's a fascination with TV and with movies and, and how, I guess, foreign intelligence or spies are depicted. That's all really useful, probably interesting to watch. Some of it is probably a bit not on the mark at all, like with most things when people compare their actual profession with what is televised. But in essence, I think the prominent issue that we need to focus on as an intelligence service is the information and intelligence that can't be obtained by other people or through other means, such as maybe open source information. Okay. So I want to ask you about that though, because open source information is readily available. And we're seeing this now with a number of conflicts in the world, the way that that's all coming out and informing uh, the public discourse. Um, So how do you then stay relevant and crucial when there is so much open source intelligence out there? Yeah, it's open source. It's a game changer. Just the amount and quality of, of information and data that's now available is absolutely a game changer. But that doesn't mean that we are redundant because of that. In fact, it really highlights that need for still that extra level of ability to access that information that isn't open source. And even though in many ways that's ubiquitous, there are still secrets out there and that is our role to identify and find those secrets. So in essence, open source has also helped us improve and be better at what we are doing because we're able to build a better picture of what it is that we need to be actually doing and focusing on and targeting. That's so fascinating. I want to pivot to a part of the interview that I enjoy probably most actually, and that is talking about your career origins. So before you joined ASIS, you had a lengthy career as a police officer, 34, 35 years? Yeah, about 34. 34 years. I have heard that you even served as an undercover police officer at one point. (laughs) I want to know in your early career, what motivated you to join the police force and what lessons did you learn along the way? Because that's quite a long career journey in one place. It is a long career journey in one place. But it's a bit like ASIS in that there are 100 careers in one. There are so many different roles that you can undertake in the police similarly with ASIS. But, yes, so I'm not a career ASIS officer. I am a career law enforcement officer. And I had a desire or an interest to do that from a very, very young age. And uh, the only thing I really ever wanted to do was be a homicide detective right from very young, you know, watching Homicide and Division 4 on TV. <laughs> Most of your listeners won't even know what that's about, but they can. you can Google it. I can still hear the music. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had that desire to want to be somebody who was there to be involved in it, a part of it, to help to do something about it. And it was always something I wanted to do. I, we don't have, I don't have a family of law enforcement people. So there was, I wasn't following path. Uh, so I was the, I'm the first one to have done that as well. So it was truly inspired by watching TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironically. <laughs> but we did have a gardener who was uh, a police officer and he came and did that on his on the weekends and I used to follow him around and chat to him all the time. And, and, you know, he was my hero for a while. So it's interesting, those influences. But I just always had it in the back of my mind. I used to get the material and have a look at the recruitment 
and what I could do and what I would have to do to get into the police. And even in the 80s, when which I'm talking about, one of the things also that attracted me was it was equal pay and equal conditions. It was proudly put uh, out on all its recruitment material, which was actually not the case for all mm. organisations at that time. So in many ways, it was quite progressive in that. But I, when I left school, I actually went to university first, did a year of university. But as much as I enjoyed it, I, I knew it just wasn't what I wanted to do at that point in time. So I deferred university and was accepted into the police and then went on my career. And throughout the career, able to do many different experiences. One you mentioned undercover. So that was working in the Drug Law Enforcement Bureau in King's Cross, where for the first time in my policing career, again, it was the 80s, I didn't have to wear a uniform. So that was amazing to be out on the streets of King's Cross just in normal clothing and doing street drug investigations, etc. Um, was it liberating to be out of uniform? Oh, it was, was, was liberating to be out of uniform. It was just fantastic. And then also to be doing the work up in King's Cross, which in that time was one of the most prominent areas for drug use and drug supply. So that was very good. And I eventually did become a homicide detective. Detective was really what I wanted to do. And I, for most of my career, I was a detective and spent many years in homicide and doing major crime, worked on many homicides and worked in many other areas. And eventually, as you sort of move up through the ranks, you know, you become less operational and, you know, more management. And I must say, I've still got that operational feel. I still think that that's the best, the best job that you can have is being, you know, operational on the front line. But, you know, eventually you do sort of move out of that in some way. So I was also fortunate enough to be in areas of command of some really great areas, uh, Redfin in Sydney and some others, and counterterrorism and specialist operations. So it was a pretty eventful and interesting and exciting law enforcement career. Okay, let's talk about career lessons. You took command of Redfern Police Command during a difficult time in that community. I imagine that must have been quite a daunting task. Can you tell us a bit about that time and how you navigated it? Yeah, I think one of the things that I took away from all of that is why it is really important to approach challenging issues from all angles, but from where the people are who are being most affected or impacted or who will have the information or where it's all happening is why it's so important to actually be at that level and understand it. But I went into Redfin to be the commander at a period of time where there had been some riots in Redfin and not good relationships between the Aboriginal community of Redfern and the police. And going in at that time, it was pretty tense and it was not good for anybody, uh, whether it be police uh, trying to do their jobs or whether it be Aboriginal people trying to live their lives. And I spent a lot of the initial time actually going around to the community, speaking to all members of the community and also junior police and really understanding what it is that were the causes or what we could identify as the problems that we needed to tackle. And that investment in people is what pays off. And I can't stress that enough, particularly when you're making decisions that impact on people. And 
eventually we got to the point where there were so many issues to address. We just, we agreed. So when I say we, so a group of Aboriginal people and, and police agreed to just focus on a couple of issues. So breaking down the barriers in the community and also family and domestic violence. And I won't go through all the things that we did, but by narrowing the complexities of the issues to two agreed areas and then by putting things in place to actually address it, we made substantial change. So uh, just under two years, we reduced crime enormously. We changed the environment for Aboriginal people. We changed the relationship between Aboriginal people and police. And we brought in a whole range of of strategies to do that. I'll just quickly tell, quickly go into one, and it just goes to show that sometimes the legislation you have in place, or the or what it is that you think is a good thing, sometimes doesn't really work. Is there's the, New South Wales had the Young Offenders Act, which meant if people under the age of eighteen who would fit a criteria, they were caught doing a low level crime. If they said, "I did it," I'm sorry, they'd be let off with a caution. And they would not then have a criminal history recorded. They would not have to enter the criminal justice system. So it's fine, but it really only worked for particular groups of people. And when it came to Aboriginal people, that wasn't, didn't turn out to be the best approach because Aboriginal people were told, oh, you shouldn't say anything to the police, which is reasonable because that is your right. So because of this sort of unfortunate series of events, they ended up being put into the criminal justice system where they shouldn't have. Mm. And so what we introduced was a 14-day cooling-off period to say, okay, there's a low-level crime that's been committed. You've got 14 days to go and sort of sort it out, work it out, speak to your legal person, and then come in and address it. So it's those sorts of things where, where the legislation sometimes can have a negative, mm. potentially a negative impact. And so what I learned from that, as I said, you've got to really understand the issue from the lowest level to make, be making big decisions, but also that sometimes your policies, sometimes legislation, sometimes those things that we use all the time and think this is the way we should do it, sometimes they're the barriers. And you've got to keep an open mind and be aware to sometimes the institutional barriers and other barriers that are actually causing the problems. For you, when you're in command and there are these difficult situations that are unfolding or that you're seeing, how do you as a person stay resilient? Well, I think I've learned that over the years. So, I mean, I've had my fair share of uh, good times and not so good times and really quite a high profile media profile in New South Wales. So sometimes negative press, uh, et cetera. I think a couple of things. I think I have a very strong family support and very strong colleagues uh, support. So I think what helps you stay resilient and helps you stay focused is knowing that you have this core support and people who who are there for you. And I think if because if sometimes if you're doing if you're going through things alone, it can be a lot harder. So I do think that good support networks, whether it is family, colleagues or friends or whatever that might be, I think that's that's a really important part of it. I think if you've made a mistake, the best thing is just to say you made a mistake. 
and then go through that part of it. I think that is sometimes it's actually a relief just to say, oh yeah, look, I stuffed up and then deal with that and then learn and improve. So I think that's an important part of the things that we all have to go through and we all we all make mistakes. Uh, so you just have to own those mistakes. And I think the other thing is sometimes when you are going through something that might be adverse or it might be really, uh, you're seeing it's very, very bad for you, is that a lot of the time, a lot of other people aren't even thinking about it. You know, you think the whole world is thinking about it and focused on you. And, you know, quite frankly, you speak to someone and they go, I don't even know what you're talking about. But you've been feeling bad or down or et cetera. So I think you can tend to lose perspective when you've got adversity uh, around you, when you're going through difficult times. And we all know that, whether it's personally or professionally, you just sometimes. And then it's just sometimes you just, if you can, or your support network around you can just take that half a step back and go, actually, it's going to be okay. I think, you know, those are the sorts of things I think about. You mentioned uh, their law enforcement and and speaking earlier about intelligence. From your perspective, are there parallels between law enforcement and intelligence? There definitely are parallels. It's interesting that the time in policing when policing actually started to become more professional and to change the way it did its work was when it actually started to use intelligence and it was known as intelligence-led policing. And in Australia, it really really came to be in the early 2000s. And that's not really that long ago. But up until then, it was a bit random and ad hoc. But intelligence-led policing was then when it was, actually, we really do need to be understanding the environment we're in. We do need to be collating as much information about where crimes are happening, who's committing crimes. And then we really do need to target those areas where it's mostly happening and then do some other analyses and work. And what was really discovered was that 80% of the crime is committed by about 5% of the people. So if you target the 5% of the people, you can have a massive impact on crime, and that's what happened. And so when you actually then have a parallel about an intelligence agency, an intelligence agency also needs to collate that information and understand the environment understand what it's doing, where it's going, who it's going to be dealing with, and then identify the best way to get the outcome. So they're quite similar in that way. In terms of the, the 34 years in policing, you're, you're talking about the problem solving, you're talking about how that foundation actually helped you in term, from an intelligence perspective, but what other elements of that very lengthy and distinguished career in policing actually helped shape the next step for you in terms of moving into an intelligence agency? So I think the things that have really shaped me and probably personally, but also then that comes out in what I want to achieve and how I try to achieve that is that your people are the most critical part of everything that you're doing and you have to look after your people. And that's in every single aspect, whether it's work health and safety, whether it's psychological safety, whether it's making sure the environment is diverse and inclusive and it's respectful, making sure that you're skilling people with the skills they need 
so that they're not placing them in danger. Mm. Uh, so I, I actually do think that all those experiences that I had in the police and then particularly in senior roles in the police where New South Wales police, very large, 22, 23,000 people, a lot of people issues all the time. And I do think that that's what shaped me. So much has changed. I remember, you know, in my early days in the police, just things that you would just look now and you'd shudder, you'd go, oh my goodness. So one example is you have to, when you're a general duties police officer in uniform, you have to go out and sometimes you have to do road duties, whether it's a fatal car crash or whatever. So you're out on the roads. It'd be night time, it'd be raining and you'd get your raincoat out and the raincoats were dark blue, heavy raincoats. So nobody could see you, mm. but nobody didn't realize that until, unfortunately, there was, you know, a police officer got hit in a dark blue raincoat. So they, even those sorts of work health and safety things, that which the consequences of those things have really impacted on me. That was many years ago, but it was, now there's no way now you'd issue dark blue raincoats to people who are working on the streets at night. And so that that's just one very small example of the need to really understand the work environment that where your people are and to make sure that you're doing everything you can to keep them safe. And that applies to ASIS as well. You know, we deploy people in overseas countries in, in different types of environments, and it's really important that we do get that right and that our people are skilled and they're trained and they, they have the tools to make those decisions available to them. So I do think that what shaped me is people and looking after people and making sure you're doing everything that you can because if you're getting it right most of the time, we never get it right all the time, if you're getting it right most of the time, then you're going to be able to achieve your goals. If you're not getting it right most of the time, you're not going to be able to achieve your goals and the outcomes that, you've, that the organisation is striving to achieve. You talk about minimising those elements of danger in the policing and the, use the, the raincoat example. I'm sure there's many others. But how are you doing that as far as you can tell us in terms of minimising the elements of danger for the people in intelligence? I think also trying to instill very much a preventative culture and being proactive in that sense. So you don't want things to happen and then then have to react and put things in place. You want to be able to prevent it. So if you've got a preventative culture happening, that is far, far better, whether it be in terms of physical or mental uh, stresses that will impact on people. I think the psychological safety is a very important mm. one as well. We are putting a lot in place to make sure people, they can, when they come to work, the environment is respectful, that they can have the confidence to speak up, that they can have the confidence to know that they will be listened to and that we will do things appropriate and that we will continue to grow and improve. So I think that's also a another aspect of trying to achieve that. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. 
I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So let's let's fast forward now to 2017. I believe you joined um, ASIS. So after 34 years in law enforcement, you've achieved your goal of being a detective and it's time for a change. And you're looking around the community and there's ASIS and I'm curious of two things. One is what did you know about the service before joining? And the second is why ASIS of all organisations? So I did know about ASIS before 2017, particularly through 2014, 2015, when we were dealing with terrorism threats in Australia and in New South Wales in the police. So one of the things that really struck me about um, the approach to countering terrorism was it really genuinely was whole of government, whether it's uh, federal or state territory government. And so in my role in charge of counterterrorism throughout 2014, 2015, I was also a part of the Australian New Zealand Counterterrorism Committee, which is chaired federally. And through that, my knowledge of our Commonwealth partners grew. So I was aware of ASIS, but never, ever did I even think about that I would be join, be a part of ASIS, that I would join ASIS, that that was even possible. Never did I think that. And then when the position was advertised, I wasn't really even looking for a position, but a very good colleague contacted me and said, you should have a look at this. Uh, it's just been advertised, see what you think. And so I did and I applied and, you know, then the rest is, is, is where I am now. But it wasn't easy. And, in fact, even when I was notified that I was successful, I was still not sure that I would make the move because it was also a move from Sydney to Canberra. But the big part of the identity, losing, you know, 34 years of identity as police officer as well, you have to eventually step away, but that, that features into your considerations about doing it. That all being said, it's one of the best moves. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm so glad I did it. And it really does go to show that everybody, doesn't matter what part of their career they're, they're at, whether it's nearing the end or in the middle or at the beginning, you can take that step. You can take that big step. And it's happened to it happened to me once in the police when my first time of moving out of an operational position, when the commissioner called me over to his office, this is when I was sort of like quite senior. So I was thinking, this is bad for starters. Well, I don't know why the commissioner's calling me over to the office. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I really hope the commissioner doesn't say, oh, I'd like you to move to corporate services. And of course, the commissioner did say, like you to move to corporate services. Now, I did I, again. I, it was moving out of an operational environment into corporate services, but it was the best thing I ever did. Of course, I said yes. It was the best thing I ever did because 
as much as you think you know the organization when you're on the front line or operational until you really know how how it functions particularly as a business in terms of its people in terms of its finances in terms of its money in terms of its risks enterprise operational organizational risks you don't really have the full picture so i just think it's a really good sort of lesson change is hard taking the step is hard but it often turns out to be very very good particularly stepping out of what you know mm. you've got you know you've got to do it yeah I, I can really relate to that when I stepped out of government into the private sector I was frankly petrified yeah. I was very afraid um, because I was leaving something that I knew very well uh, and stepping into a domain that I knew nothing about but you're right change is good I wanted to ask you just reflecting on that as well if there have been aspects of your experience in ASIS that have been different from the expectation. So having known about the service in 2014-2015 and then making this decision to apply for the role, you would have had some preconceived ideas about what the service was like. Have there been aspects of that experience that have surprised you? I guess there have been. I have been really inspired by the calibre of the people who work in ASIS and what it is that they actually do. For Australia. Now, similarly, have that inspiration in the police, but this is at a different level. To uproot yourself, live in a foreign country for, say, two to three years, some take their families, and then doing a job that, you know, that, that we ask them to do, a lot of responsibility. It's quite amazing, and the people are just amazing. So, whether it's a surprise or not, it's just one of those things that I have been constantly impressed with. I think that's probably the better word. And I've been impressed with the leadership team, ASIS. It is truly collegiate. It is truly for the staff. Of course, it's a different mission and a different purpose, but I think the commitment to mission and purpose is also one of the things that I really am impressed with. Some people might hear you say that you're impressed and they might interpret that to mean that the people who work in ASIS are just, you know, super brilliant PhDs or um, experts at their field. Uh, what would you say to them? I mean, are there people like that in in your organisation, or is it or is it more of the everyday diverse reflection of the community? Uh, it's definitely the latter. It, it's uh, no, not everybody ha- has a PhD, but they are they are all impressive in their own way you don't need a degree you don't need to be doing necessarily international relations at university you just need to have a desire i think to commit to the mission and it could be anybody it could be a person who's working in a trade it could be a person who is at university and who is thinking about maybe a career change or a transition or, or what what else is there. And there are people who might already be interested in national security, but not considering ASIS. There might be people who are in law enforcement even, uh, you know, who might be interested. So the actual important thing that I think I need to get across is that anybody could and should apply. And the more diverse, the better. We do have a diverse workforce but we need to do a lot better. We need to be more diverse. And we're only going to do that by really giving people that inspiration to say, okay, 
I can I can do this and then have the confidence that they can. So it's impressive because it's anybody who's coming and committing to the purpose. ACES, like so many of our intelligence agencies, is now emerging from the shadows and engaging more openly with the community. Why and why now? And what do you want to achieve while you're at ACES in this new environment, with this more open and engaged environment? Yeah, open and engaged environment is so uh, is so appropriate. We're seeing so many different challenges and complexities. The foreign minister and others have said, in terms of what is happening at the moment, it's probably one of the most dramatic times of change and unrest, particularly in terms of peace and stability mm. and international laws and rule-based orders. And that's quite extraordinary when you actually think about that. And the Australian Secret Intelligence Service has been around since 1952. And in fact, this month, we are celebrating our 70 years of being in existence. Its role over the last 70 years has not changed. It is about human intelligence, but the environment and the complexity Mm. of what we work in has changed. And a lot has changed also in respect of the people that we need to actually have working with ASIS to achieve our goals. So, so much has changed that we understand and we hope that Australians would want to know a bit more about their overseas foreign service. As you said, people do see it on depicted in movies and TV, but we actually we actually want to try to ensure that Australians actually do have a proper understanding or a more of an understanding and awareness that yes, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service does exist. The organization itself isn't secret because we're now talking about it. And for the first time, I'm able to talk about it in this way. And that's only since November last year were the deputy director general levels of ASIS um, given the approval and authority to publicly declare their positions. Anybody else who works with ASIS can't do that. And prior to late last year, I couldn't do that either. So it's one of the things about ASIS which is intriguing and interesting and and the things that we have to navigate that you can't tell people you work in ASIS or Mm. you work for ASIS. Some people really like that. You know, it liberates them on the weekend. You know, no, I can't. I, I seriously, I'm not. I can't talk about work, and it's fantastic in many ways. But because of those complexities, it's even more important that we maximise our communication to the Australian community about what it is we do and why we do it, and in that sense, to hope to build up trust and confidence in us as well about why we do things. Equally as important, we need to have a voice out there that people who might not otherwise have known about us or thought about us will now consider us as potentially a place to come and work. And it's really very important for us that we broaden our reach Mm. across our whole community of Australia. We need the diversity that exists in our community to come into ASIS so we actually represent and reflect the community of Australia. Now, if we are so secret that there's only one person who can actually really go out and say they work for ASIS, it's hard to get those messages out. We do do recruitment. We have a website. We have a careers page. We advertise for positions that are available. And I encourage your listeners to actually go to the website. The website's very good. Uh, That's that's great. Answering questions about whether you engage in torture 
and answering questions about whether you carry weapons, uh, it's, uh, it does dispel a lot of those myths. It's a perfect source mm. of information. That's absolutely right. And dispelling myths is really important. That, again, is one of the reasons that we're able to come and talk to more people about that. And it also has the careers page, of course. And we have such a wide cross-section of positions. Everybody has a role to play, whether you're a technologist, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a, a designer, whether you're a communications person, whether you are somebody who is suitable to be an intelligence officer, whether you're an HR professional. We have the whole range of positions and we all commit to the one mission and we all commit to what it is that we're trying to do in the interests of Australia and Australians. So don't rule yourself out is what I would say to people. Have a look, have a think about it. And sometimes the process, once people actually think, oh, I can do it, might seem a little daunting because it is a secret intelligence service, but I would say persevere. Just on the, the, the vetting process and the length of time it takes, there is talk around the intelligence community and the national security community more generally about actually getting people in and just working on low classified information until that actually their vetting uh, comes through. So is ACES looking at that? Is ACES in a position to look at that in terms of keeping them warm and keeping them in the system? Yeah, it really, it really goes into and emphasises the reason we need diversity. So it might be diversity in the type of workforce that you have. I think it's important to understand that ASIS is a part of the national intelligence community. We're one part of it. And so we work within that intelligence community on striving to look at a whole range of different ways of employing a workforce. So some parts of the intelligence community would be doing it at a completely unclassified level and we can take advantage of that or it might be at different classification levels. But it is about expanding that diversity of workforce options and that's the advantage of being a part of the national the intelligence community. The broader community. community. That's exactly yes. right. Yeah. So, so we're only one part and there are many agencies that fill that broader national intelligence mm. community. And so the strength is us working together and all of us being understanding of the need to have different ways of working, finding different pathways in, finding different avenues to attract people from particularly culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds, people with a disability and people from LGBTQI plus communities, how we attract people from those communities as well who might otherwise not think it is something for them. But because we are a part of that community, it gives us that ability to do that. So it's not just ASIS trying to do all of this alone. We are very much part of that community. Now, just looking broadly to the environment that we're in at the moment, what are the key threats that ASIS is focused on at this point in time? There's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot of uncertainty. So what, what are you focused on at the moment? Yeah, the, there, there is a lot going on and there is uncertainty. And so we're pretty much focused on what the government is focused on because that's where our intelligence requirements come from. At the moment, there's clearly disruption around what we are seeing, particularly around peace and stability, about democracies. We're seeing this play out in Russia and Ukraine and Europe. 
but it is complex. We're looking at threats from technology. We're looking at threats, particularly cyber threats. I think in terms of those sorts of things which potentially are are game-changing, there really are the things that we have to be really understanding and on top of because whether it be you know quantum computing, whether it be artificial intelligence, machine learning, the biotechnology, we have to know the environment. I'm curious to understand from your perspective how women in mission-facing roles and threat-facing roles bring uh, a different perspective to decision-making. Well, I think women bring a different perspective to decision-making in everything. I think one of the things that is really critical is reflecting who we are, and that means having women in all positions of an organisation. So whether that be the people who are the managers or the leaders or whether it be people at the front line, women need to be a part of that to ensure that we have diversity of thought and that we have diversity and well-informed decision making. So that to me guides all of it. So whether it's, you know, it's about threat, whether it's about mission, whether it's about a new HR policy, whether it's about anything else, to me that fundamental position has to be for all of it. You need that equal representation to ensure that you're getting the best decisions. So, Kath, you've spoken about how you cope with adversity and hostility, uh, particularly when you're a very public figure in New South Wales. What's your one tip for decompressing after a stressful day? Well, my tip won't work for everybody because it's got everybody's got to come up with their own way. But I'm pretty simple, really. If I really want to just take my mind off something or do something, I play the guitar. So I will get acoustic or electric. Well, I play an acoustic. I used to play electric. (laughs) Oh, really? Were you in a band? (laughs) No. Oh no, but I'm not very good. But so uh, you know, I I will play the acoustic guitar, and I do know a few songs, and and uh, so that's one of the things that I would do. But you know, that's not necessarily going to be for everybody. But I think more broadly, then it's uh, it's just something that you like to do, probably even for yourself. I know my partner doesn't like listening to what I do. But that's okay. <laughs> and, you know, just take your mind off it. Sometimes, it's, you know, even that might be a bit hard. You go, oh, I don't feel like that. But once you do it, it's worth it. And before I moved to Canberra, I, I used to actually go swimming, do the line in the pool. So I think it's, it's whatever it is that you like, that even if you can just take that five, ten minutes out. That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Kath, for so many insights from your amazing career and so many key lessons from your career journey. Uh, For me, the top three were that change is hard, uh, taking steps are hard, but you've got to do it. You've got to get out of your comfort zone no matter where you are in your career cycle. Also, you've got to have a core of support, a support network around you to deal with the tough times, to deal with the rough and tumble of your life, your career, and particularly adversity and hostility. And if you make a mistake, acknowledge it. You get relief from actually acknowledging it and fessing up to it and learn and improve. And remember that you can often lose sight, lose perspective when you actually have made a mistake and just take a half step back, uh, reassess, regroup and pick yourself up and learn and improve from that. 
Kath, I want to thank you so much. This has been fascinating to hear about ACES and what it does, uh, but it's also been incredibly inspirational to hear your journey and your story. So thank you so much and thank you for uh, coming and doing your very first ever interview as uh, as an ACES officer, as a known ACES officer here with us on the WinsPod. Thank you. Thank you so much, Meg. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for the feedback. Please keep it coming to natsecpod at anu.edu.au. We always really appreciate your comments, your thoughts, your suggestions, and we're always looking for ideas for questions for future podcasts. And until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.